Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan, a cybersecurity architect. And we are here once again to help demystify the complex and confusing world of cybersecurity today. We're going to be talking about one of the more frightening recent hacks in American corporate culture. There's a company that you may have heard of called 3CX. Now, 3CX has a lot of products, but one of their biggest, most widely used products is a VOIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol. It's like Vonage. It's, you know, one of those things that it's standard communications over the phone. Over the past 10 years, most American businesses have shifted from having standard landline phone service to VOIP service. The company 3CX has 12 million users, and that means not 12 million individuals. That means 12 million individuals and businesses. So you're talking about a lot of users. Well, 3CX got hacked, and part of what that hack did was push the infection all the way down to those 12 million users. So what we know or what we think we know about 3CX from what has been published, we know that 3CX was hacked and that a bunch of their customers saw essentially active data breaches as a result. Apparently, it was a security company that identified the breach and notified everybody and, in fact, notified 3CX, I guess, and kind of asked 3CX, hey, why aren't you guys telling people about this, but it has been determined, or at least the cybersecurity companies who have talked about it, including CrowdStrike, have attributed the attack to North Korea. And they've said that even though they're, you know, have hundreds of thousands of business customers and millions of daily active users, that essentially these hackers were really only targeting cryptocurrency customers, exchanges, any way they could get access to cryptocurrency and essentially steal it and use it in their financially motivated attacks out of North Korea, you know, sponsored by North Korea. But this is something called a supply chain attack. Probably the most famous supply chain attack recently is the solar winds attack. Now, Ryan, you know a lot more about the solar wind stuff than I do. What happens in a supply chain attack and using the solar winds case as an example, maybe describe how these things work. Sure. So a supply chain attack is effectively a downstream attack. It's an effort that starts with an initial compromise of a business that usually has some sort of deployable system. In Orion's case, it's a piece of management software. In the case of 3CX, it's a telephony tool. In the end, all of those tools are running on end user systems or server systems. They run in bulk in volume across many systems and in a lot of cases with privileges, which is what makes them a really attractive target. Because if you can have those working on your behalf, then you don't have to worry about detectable malware sitting on a system directly engaging your commands for you. You have a legitimate trusted tool pushing those commands out or spiking that activity on your behalf. This starts with initial vector compromise into one of these businesses, uh, usually pivots into some sort of persistent with the ultimate goal of getting access to source code repositories and the ability to not just pull that code out, but to make modifications to it and successfully post that code back, allowing it to get past any potential reviews, any scanning, any whatever layers of mechanisms you have in place to detect some sort of malice in the code. And if you can successfully get to that point of getting that code pushed back, well, you know now you've got bad code or in the threat actor's case, good code for them being pushed out through legitimate tools that in a lot of cases tend to be whitelisted in environments because that's just the standard of the manufacturer that they say, don't have your antivirus scan our tool because it's going to pick things up and interfere with our ability to operate, put in an exception. An exception to a tool that's been exploited is a broad exception and it puts you at a lot of additional risk. So that's where supply chain attacks have become really, really a great tool for threat actors because it gets them behind the perimeter in a fashion that it usually is cloaked pretty heavily. 
Now, there are a couple different types of supply chain attacks from what I understand, but the one that's been the most prevalent lately is I think, you know, essentially what you've been talking about would be considered a software or platform-based supply chain attack where literally a hacker is looking for a piece of software, just like you described, something that is going to be centrally operated by the company that owns it, that runs it, but then is used by hundreds, if not thousands of other companies downstream, and that by getting access to that initial company, and if they can find a way to insert something into that operational center, they can essentially send it out to everyone who's using the product, which is one of the reasons why antivirus and other security systems have been such a popular target. What kind of things go into a supply chain attack of that nature? The opportunities are endless with supply chain attacks. I mean, you're talking about, especially with what you touched on at the very end, if you were to say, get a a really broad level EDR tool and you could somehow impact the code there and have that running. In a lot of cases, those are widely exempted because of just the nature of what they do on a system. And so that would be the perfect type of tool. Plus, a lot of those tend to be very, very broadly deployed, which and they pull updates and new definitions and things quite frequently, which again, makes them a very easy target, a very attractive target to go after because you get immediate effect, immediate coverage on whatever it is you're pushing out. So again, that could be crypto mining tools, that could be malware, that could be something like a persistence beacon from something like a cobalt strike. It could be something as simple as running something like a Metasploit and just having it scan and push everything they can. I mean, that would be a loud approach and that's usually going to get you noticed right away. But in a lot of cases, they would want to use something at that level to do something as quietly as possible until they're ready to achieve whatever objective it is. And this, it jumps right on one of the most, the first thing I see on every single list, I feel like, of cybersecurity best practices is always constantly make sure your updates are active and you're fully patched. And this literally takes that cybersecurity mandate and turns it on its head, doesn't it? That is one of the big reasons why Zero Trust has been gaining a lot of traction in the industry is because attacking that level of trust and attacking that level of kind of diligence is been a hot target for attackers because again those are the pieces everyone says come together let's build these circles of trust and that will keep us safe well that's where the next pivot goes is you attack the circles of trust and in this case here you're attacking those trusted software packages now we've talked in the past about various types of cyber attacks and in the near future i expect we'll be doing a lot more on more specific kinds of attacks but what types of attacks do we typically see coming through a supply chain attack. Again, that kind of varies wildly based upon what the ultimate end goal of the attacker is. Again, some of these attackers are very financially motivated. And if that's the case, you're going to see one of two end goals. You're either going to see crypto mining deployment with the goal of just kind of slowly producing that extra money with hopefully keeping yourself as under the radar as possible for as long as possible. Or you're going to be looking at like a widespread ransomware type deployment where the goal is to get as much coverage as they can, understand the validity and the value of the data that's sitting in those data sets, and then do what they can to find a way to hold it for ransom and see if they can collect on it that way. Some are there for data theft. And in those cases, you'll see they deploy those tools across multiple organizations through the supply chain and then use it to start scouring and doing discovery on what data is available and then look for exfiltration means, whether that means they need to use the tool to deploy an exfiltration means or whether they've already got one in place, courtesy of whatever malware they've got as part of the supply chain attack. And that's just a couple of the opportunities. But realistically, if you can get a good supply chain tool with 
high privileges. I mean, the opportunities are endless and there's so many different avenues you can exploit that are attractive to threat actors nowadays. But those are probably the two big ones. So basically what we're looking at here is that it's entirely possible that any type of hacking technique could be used as part of a supply chain attack. And if that supply chain attack comes through a service or system that you're using to detect or defend you against cyber attacks, that's the stuff of nightmares. Well, I'll tell you, you just you touched on one of the big ones, the one of the ones that has always been the golden egg for me. If you're a bad guy and you want it, go get Windows Update. You snag Windows Update. And you can slide something in on a patch Tuesday, game over. We're starting to touch on some very dangerous things because now you're talking the ability to update all of the Windows tools that run at system level and you're doing it from inside their base. And if you were to push it out through Windows Update, it would have to be signed as well, which means you've got the capabilities to not just get in and inject code that gets through an approval and a review process, but you're sending out signed code on behalf of the operating system that the majority of the world it runs on. And that's very scary stuff, which is why those code review processes, code signing, all of those kind of code protection technologies and and procedures need to be in place for anybody that has a broadly deployed software package anywhere. It's just mandatory. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. I want to get into this a little bit. I mean, we've talked a little bit why these things are so dangerous. I think that the scariest element of it is that it's the proverbial, the, the call is coming from inside your house thing where the pathway to enter your system is in your own system itself through vendor that you trust. And we've seen it in the past, you know, CC Cleaner, I remember was one of the big, the first time I've ever heard of supply chain attacks was actually the CC Cleaner one, I think it was back in 2016. You're talking about legitimate systems that are operating and all it takes is one update. And that's a pretty serious thing. And I'm going to pull up here the statistics. One statistic I read was that between 2019 and 2020, the number of next-gen supply chain attacks, software attacks, increased by 430%. That's just staggering. In your experience, why is this attack becoming so much more popular? Because it's available and because it's one of the best ways to get broad coverage across a lot of organizations. If your goal as a threat actor is to gain broad access to different environments so that you can either deploy your software or ransomware or whatever your end goal is, part of the goal is initial access and then privilege elevation. And you have to get kind of through these first couple main steps, but you're doing it system by system, environment by environment and you have to use different techniques uh, and different attempts to get into each and every one of those environments. But what if you just had a master key that just lets you walk right in the door to all these different environments? Tell me as a threat actor or as a, a criminal that that's not just an absolute pile of gold waiting to happen. So instead of targeting your attacks one by one at each of these different ones here, they just go and they look for who's got the biggest coverage, who's got enough holes to get in and who, to pull off something like this. And then you evaluate and you abuse that trust that that vendor has with all of their partners and use it to leverage their tool 
as part of your attacks. Well, and of course, now we've got, I mean, it's one of the things that I deal with the companies that hire me is setting up internal systems for how to deal with a lot of these conversions where we're going from companies with an entirely physical infrastructure to companies having an entirely digital infrastructure. So now, you know, as a company, you're no longer even looking to an internal server system to get your documents if you need them. You're going to a cloud service provider. So the sheer explosion of digital vendors, of access through APIs, of all this stuff where everyone seems interconnected. It just makes it, it's as fertile of a ground as I can think of. Yeah. I mean, realistically, like, and again, this is stepping kind of close to doom and gloom stuff here, but realistically, like the most secure way to keep your data, obviously, is physically under lock and key in a physical location where you can watch it. Uh, That's not feasible anymore in today's day and age. And so the digital transformation was expected and necessary, but but making sure that we finish doing this right and making sure we approach it with the mindset that people are going to continuously be hammering away at these different types of technologies, we have to start building things with security first mindsets going forward. Because again, in order to attack something that's under lock and key in your house, a criminal has to be pretty bold. They have to come and break into your environment and go face to face with you to go after your data. In a digital world, they can do this with near full anonymity from protection of many thousands of miles. They could be halfway across the globe and they can do it at any time of the day with a varying set of resources. And all they have to do is find a single point of failure on your end and you have to be successful in 100% perimeter protection, internal protection, and all of your different policies and tools. So, I mean, it's just, it's a constant uphill battle. You touched on something that I think that's going to be very important for this conversation. And I want to talk about what can be done to limit the risk of being harmed by a supply chain attack. And I think you started with it. It sounds to me like just like everything else, there's no guarantee of prevention, but there's a whole lot of steps you can take to at least improve your chances against this kind of an enemy. Security and layers, obviously, never let one single tool pass through all of your layers of security unless you know exactly what that tool is. You can fully trust it and that you've got visibility around it and you understand what its scope is. So as soon as it does start to create any sort of anomalous behavior, You're watching for things like that because, again, if you take down all your defenses around that tool, now nothing's watching it and you're just blindly letting it do whatever it wants with elevated privileges. Restricting privileges around your tools as much as is possible. Most of the vendors back in the day all said, run it as admin. That was always the advice for every tool. Why? Because it makes it easier to run. And then they don't have to deal with the security controls that operating system vendors put in place, which are there for legitimate reasons. Most of these tools can run without admin, without super elevated privileges. They just need very procured privileges. And it gets to be a little challenging as a system administrator to put these things in place, but taking the time and the diligence and putting forth the due diligence to go through and limit the privileges of these tools and these accounts as much as you can is going to save you a ton of headache later on down the road. It's worth the investment in time now. And again, that's just part of security best practices, making sure nothing has the ability to go nuclear in your environment unless the purpose of that tool is to go nuclear. And then you have to make sure that you've got it restricted so that it can only do so when you say or when you've deemed appropriate. And, you know, one other thing there that you just talked about earlier is the software development. And, you know, one of the things that I keep emphasizing with my clients all the time is vendor management. And a lot of people don't want to take this step. It is, or it can seem to be like a lot of work. But the bottom line is that most privacy protection regimes nowadays are requiring anyone who collects or processes data of any individual to make, it makes them responsible for what their vendors do and their vendor security policies. So by hook or by crook, you're going to be responsible for what your vendor 
vendors do sooner or later. So may as well make it sooner. But one of the big things that I found was this interesting discussion about software development. Now, software tends to be deployed with two priorities in mind, user interface and time production, time to release, which basically means they want to make it so that you can use the features that they need you to use, and they want to get it to you as fast as possible. There is a competing priority called security by default and by design. Now, those are technically two different concepts, security by default and security by design. But the security by design is the more important aspect of that because in software development, I've read so much about the extent to which we use open source code in our software. And one source that I found said that 11% of the open source components have at least one known security vulnerability. And on average, applications that rely on open source code contained 38 known vulnerabilities at the time of their release. This seems to me like something that is utterly unsustainable. Is a security by design approach going to help this type of problem? It can. It all kind of depends on the actual security by design approach. If the goal is to create software as secure as is possible with the tools you have, that I think to myself, it would assume some level of assumed risk. Are there some level of assumed risk in that type of design? A really security-centric or security-minded approach to development would look at the shortcomings of the open source tool sets that they're using and either work with other tool sets that don't suffer from the same vulnerabilities or fork those tool sets to work out those vulnerabilities or at a bare minimum, scan through all of the code, all of the open source vulnerabilities they have and put whatever the known mitigations are in place and make sure that you document that you've done so, so that you can say that, yes, even though there is an insecure configuration available in this version of whatever Java or whatever library you're using, we have put the vendor's mitigations in place to prevent that CVE from being exploitable, effectively reducing the exploit. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I've read that there are a lot of steps that software designers can take to improve the security, but I am not a software designer or a software developer, and I'm literally relying on reports from security companies that I've read. Ryan, would it be effective as part of your vendor security management to go out there and at least try to ensure that anyone who's got software development responsibilities is implementing this kind of security by default, security by design approach? I think to some extent, but again, it's only going to be as you're relying on the partner to report properly to you in that case. And so again, you're putting a small amount of trust back into that equation. So yes, I do think that's important. I think that's really important for a legal coverage point as well to make sure that you've got them admitting to the fact that they do follow these practices so that if they do get caught later not following them, you've at least got that available. Well, that's important even in a consumer context too. Buy from companies who 
pledge in their terms that they do have security principles at the core of, of what they do. Because even if something goes wrong there as a consumer, you may have some recourse against them, not just a business to business context. I think that's an important thing to note. You're absolutely right. I'm going to go buy a bunch of Eufy stuff right now. So uh, no, hey, I'm not. I'm, hey, I'm, we should just go back and replay our rant about how ridiculous yeah. that was and how many security researchers had bought their products because of those pledges. I think more importantly is that not only do you need to do that piece, you do need to do your vendor due diligence diligence and you need to make sure you understand what their practices are, how their practices could potentially impact you, especially if their software runs with any sort of elevated privileges or at any sort of scale in your environment. But the more critical piece is a really mature organization will not just take that as being, okay, now I'm secure because the vendor says I'm secure. You need to test those software packages. You need to be scanning those things, whether that is just putting some sort of EDR, XDR, something in front of them so that you're scanning the traffic going in and out. But if you really want to take them further, hit all those things with application scanning tools as well. Hit the final code like you would if you were a software developer releasing your own package. Those static and dynamic application security testing tools are available on the market. There's even some open source versions of them. You can use those to scan those software packages that flat out do some really basic level security testing and will give you visibility that you can actually trust with data that's backed by data inside those applications. So again, don't just have the conversation, don't just do the paperwork, but actually do the proper due diligence and actually test the software to make sure you understand the vulnerabilities and you're aware of them so you can put proper mitigations in place so you don't end up having to just be subject to this later and rely on those legal protections because that's the worst case scenario to be. Well, that's all the time we have this week on Fearless Paranoia. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Go ahead and share with anyone you think this podcast would be helpful for. You can like and follow us on any of our social media platforms. I feel like I'm stumbling through this one. Yeah, Ryan, anything from you? No, I think you you nailed it right on the head. Again, our goal is just to break this information down to something usable. And if we are hitting that goal, please go out there and sound the horn for us because we'd love to keep making sure that this information, if it is usable, gets out to as many people as it can. Because uh, if we can do that, we're making the world a little bit better of a place. And that's good in my book. Yeah, at least justifies the time that I spend editing this podcast. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Please tune in next week for Fearless Paranoia. I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>